Hi, I'm Daniel Ruskin. I'm Kylie Dossi. And today we're going to be talking about Medicare for All. Um, welcome to episode four of the Kylie and Daniel Policy Podcast. And thanks for tuning in. Hope you yep. found the last three episodes interesting. Um, we've been talking a lot about government spending, um, you know, uh, like the COVID and the CARES Act and, and all that stuff like that. So today we're going to be kind of continuing discussions about the role of government and I guess public welfare by talking about Medicare for all. So I guess the first point we want to discuss is whether Medicare for all is something we should have kind of from like a philosophical point of view. Is this something that a first world, you know, developed country should be providing to its citizens as a right, or really should every country should be providing it to its citizens as a right, I guess, starting with the US. So I think there are kind of a couple aspects to this decision. I think there's of course, an economic aspect, because we have to figure out if we have it, how do we pay for it? Where does the money come from? And I think there's also, more importantly, a moral aspect. Because I think a lot of what comes up in the Medicare for all debate and in healthcare more generally is the concept of healthcare as a human right. And I think if if someone believes in healthcare as a human right, I think it, it almost follows that we have to have some kind of government-provided healthcare for those who can't afford it. Yeah, absolutely. I know that um, it has been much more of a discussion in the past decade or so, especially with the introduction of the Affordable Care Act by the mm -hmm. Obama administration. And it certainly has been picked up a lot of ground, especially with this last um, presidential cycle with all the candidates believing in some form of Medicare for all, whether it's the actual stance of Medicare for all that Sanders Sanders and Senator Warren adopted into their platforms, or it's more of the Medicare for all for those who want it platform that was more popularized by the center left candidates such as Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and a couple others as well. I know that it usually is a difficult discussion to have with people on the moral front because although a lot of people want to say that healthcare is a human right, and many people share that view, and I would hope that everyone does share that view and have the compassion for others, but then it turns into, like you're saying before, the economic issue of how do we pay for it? Like, how can we lower costs? How can we better uh, appropriate our funding to incorporate a Medicare for all structure that every other developed nation in the world has been able to give to their citizens? So we're going to go into that in this episode. Yeah, well, I guess we... For the purpose of this episode, I guess, since we both agree that Medicare for all should be a thing, I guess we can talk about why we think that's the case and then kind of go from there, talk a little bit about how we can pay for it, what the taxes look like, you know, or how we could, um, you know, reduce costs possibly with cost control. And then after that, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the various Medicare plans that are Medicare for all plans that exist, such as, you know, the plan introduced by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And then we can go from there. And I think there are a lot of different aspects to this that'll kind of come up like cost sharing, um, the comprehensiveness of the policy, um, lots of like small nuances that kind of come up and naturally in a discussion. So I guess it sounds like we both agree, honestly, that Medicare for all should exist. And I think it's like you said, it's kind of hard to have a moral discussion about it because if someone does not agree that healthcare is a human right, it kind of, I guess, it's hard to proceed from there because it, it kind of comes up as why would we 
spend all this effort on guaranteeing healthcare from the government to healthcare is not a human right. But I guess we both agree that it is. So we can proceed on that assumption and, you know, talk about, you know, how we would pay for it. Yeah. So I think, so I, you know, you brought up an interesting study um, in the research we did, this uh, new Yale study that brought up that, you know, under certain Medicare for all plans, the United States would spend $3 trillion on healthcare annually, which is $460 billion less than what we spent, you know, under the current system in 2017. And it would save 69,000 lives every year. So I guess when when you put it like that, it's it almost seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, we'd save money and we'd save lives. But I think some of the you know complexity here comes with who's spending the money. Because right now, when America spends money on healthcare, it's something that you know we're spending, right? Individually. Like I'm spending money on a procedure as opposed to, or I'm spending money on a procedure that's reimbursed by an insurance plan that's paid for by my employer. So I think we would obviously spend less, which I think economically, you know, on a macro level is beneficial. But I think what people have trouble with sometimes is reconciling that, yeah, we're going to be spending less, but the government's going to be spending for it. So that means I have to pay more taxes. So I guess maybe we can talk about how we can, you know, address that. And I guess how we can, you know, address people who think that Medicare for all would require them to pay more in taxes and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, so I just want to emphasize to any of those who are listening, like, don't take these numbers too literally. Like, these are just projections that were estimated, but it is incredibly telling of what could happen if we were to adopt a Medicare for all structure. So right now, if you do have insurance, whether it is paid for through your employer, whether you are paying for the um, plan, plan privately, or say you're like me and you just get through your parents, you someone is still spending thousands of dollars on these insurance plans. And it is costing the United States about $500 billion a year just to administer. And if we were to create a Medicare for all structure, it would be replacing the existing Medicare and Medicare um, programs that are given to people who are more low income, um, they're older, they can't afford to get it on their own. So the states and the governments give it to them. So this would also um, be replacing the employee-sponsored insurance, which about 150 million Americans currently receive. And the benefits for this are going to be incredibly generous. You know, Medicare um, is going to cover all of your medical care. It would be completely free. You'd have small co-pays for required um, prescription drugs, but depending on whose plan you're looking at, I know that um, Senator Sanders had a cap, I believe it was somewhere under like $500 per year, whereas um, Senator Warren was somewhere in like the thousands per month instead, because I'm sure you've heard the stories before of people having to ration insulin and everything because of drug price gouging. So this plan would also be addressing that issue and cut that down. And this plan was very popularized. Um, Once again, within the last like five or so years, um, since Senator Sanders has really come to the forefront of this discussion. But some people think that this is still too radical at this time, which is where Medicare for all who want it comes from. This, um, This term was coined by 
Pete Buttigieg back over in October where he called his plan Medicare for All Who Want It. It's supposed to be an alternative mm-hmm. to the plan, and it's more so of an optional government insurance plan where uninsured people are just automatically enrolled, but people with the employee-sponsored um, insurance would be allowed to join if they're not satisfied with their current private insurance. This kind of comes from the idea that like people love their private insurance plans, which I personally never heard, but that's a whole nother discussion. And this limits down co-pays to about $1,000 a year. It's supposed to reduce drug prices and allow Medicare to negotiate um, the cost of these prescription drugs. It's also supposed to be cracking down on billing, out-of-pocket expenses, say if you had to have emergency surgery at a hospital that is considered out of network. It's going to crack down on um, the insane costs that you might um, get from that. But the biggest issue is that this does not cover 100% of people like Medicare for All um, is proposing, but instead only covers 97% of people. This sounds great, but when you actually do the math on this, that still leaves about 10 million people uninsured. So. Not the best plan, not the worst, but, you know, Medicare for all is what I personally believe in and what I think is the best plan. And we're going to go into a little bit about um, more like costs, about seeking care currently. And yeah, Daniel, if you want to take that part on. Yeah, and I I think I want to bring up a couple, I guess, emphasize a couple points he made. Um, I think this concept of Medicare for all who want it kind of sounds attractive, right? Because you kind of get to choose, do I want my private insurance or do I want government-provided insurance? But I think it, in a lot, some ways it kind of defeats the point of having Medicare for all. Because like you mentioned, this country spends $500 billion a year just on healthcare billing and administrative costs. So like insurance companies and you know billing coders and everything. And I think if we still have this private insurance infrastructure, where even if 3% of the country has to use that infrastructure, or possibly more if they're still employer-sponsored insurance is kind of an extra benefit for people who make a lot of money. I think we're still going to have a lot of that administration cost. And I think it kind of, you know, I would argue that it would make more sense to just switch to an entirely single-payer system where we have Medicare for all, and then we could just eliminate, you know, private insurers entirely and eliminate those administrative costs that seem to kind of be skimming from the top a little bit. Yeah, but absolutely. Oh, I think there, <laughs> I mean, I think there are, but I think there are counter arguments to that, right? I mean, on one hand, yeah, like some people do like their private insurance. I think people who possibly make a lot of money and they want to buy, you know, I, I guess a, a luxury insurance plan, for example, we might want to let them do that. So, for example, maybe you can buy an insurance plan that will grant you a private hospital room if you um, have an emergency and you need to go to the ER or something like that, or more luxury services that people would want to pay for. I think maybe there still could be room for things like that. But I think as far as like regular, as far as like duplicative insurance goes, like if we're already covering services under Medicare for all, I guess I struggle to see the point of, you know, Medicare for all who want it, where they can get the same coverage from a private um, insurer instead. Yeah, it's it's certainly a difficult discussion, especially <clears throat> one of the biggest arguments that people bring up about Medicare for All, not only um, the cost, which this Yale study kind of ended up proving wrong, 
about people who thought that it was going to cost us so much more. This Yale study proves that we're actually going to be spending a lot less on it. But one big contention that a lot of people have is what about the people who work right now in health insurance? What's going to happen to them? Depending on what Medicare for All plan you're looking at, Senator Sanders was actually introducing one that would help out with new job training and um, the transition into it. It's the same as his um, fossil fuel plan where people wonder what's going to happen with like the coal miners and everything. There was going to be a new job training um, initiative to help these people find different jobs and, you know, train them so that these positions can end up being eliminated so that we can save us a ton of money per year, but also make sure that these people will be taken care of. So that's just against that argument as well. And yeah, if you do really look into Medicare for all, if you look on the different plans, I personally think that Senator Sanders plan is really wonderful. I think that he really addressed a lot of different issues um, that was happening with it, with the drug prices, administration, um, cost, all of that. He he really made sure to um, look out for everyone in that. So I just encourage everyone to do um, more research into the different Medicare for all plans. Absolutely. And I think with, um, you know, the fact that if we switch to Medicare for all completely, we are going to be eliminating this large industry that employs thousands and thousands of people. So that's definitely consideration we have to make. And I think it's kind of a analogous to automation, right? Like if we're having automation in you know, fast food restaurants or in, you know, airports or any kind of business that, you know, I guess unskilled labor, so to speak. I think when we replace that with automation, we're also eliminating thousands and thousands of jobs, which is going to leave a lot of people unemployed. So I think that's also kind of part of a bigger discussion. What are we going to do when automation and Medicare for all or any other, you know, systemic changes, some of which are unavoidable, cause mass unemployment, um, I guess, on a more permanent basis than, you know, COVID. So I guess that's kind of also like a discussion, like, what role are we going to have? Like maybe it's UBI or maybe it's, you know, some other kind of government job program, but I think something's definitely going to have to happen to address that issue at a wider level. And I think, so I guess like maybe, I guess, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but if not, we can move on to that, you know, cost sharing, seeking care topic as well. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, that's something that we can honestly do a whole episode on is just discussing like what would happen if we did have these massive systemic changes and, what the government can do to try and mitigate that and make sure that millions of people don't lose their jobs and we actually convert into a really great job market that has opportunities for everyone. But yeah, I think um, going on to cost sharing right now, um, yeah, if you want to look at like, not like maybe like it should be a sliding scale based on income and I know that um, a lot of people, like we were saying before, get employee um, insurance through that. And like you were also saying, it depends on what plans you end up getting for what um, your job gets. I know that my mom's job um, at her old um, place of employment, they would change it every single year because they wanted to keep on trying to find the most cost-effective plan. So I would literally have like new health insurance like every single year. I have like probably five health insurance cards. And yeah, it's really hard to try um, find a way to like reduce spending, but also make sure that um, 
you get adequate care. I know that like my co-pays were different every single year, depending on which health insurance I had. Sometimes just to go pick up um, some of the prescriptions that I have, like sometimes it would be $5 um, depending on the plan. Then like the next year, all of a sudden it was $25. Next thing I knew, like I was paying nothing for it. And all these different plans offer so many different things. And it goes into how much we want to, um, like the person is able to spend on it, but also like what's their best way of getting the savings from it. Yeah. And I think one of the big um, problems surrounding health insurance is a lot of people just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like there are health plans are in complex and in a lot of ways they kind of mask the true cost of medic medical care. So I guess like just to give a quick like recap of like how health insurance works in general, like you mentioned, you have copays, deductibles, out-of-pocket maxes. So, you know, the copay is when you, uh, a fixed dollar amount that you pay for a given service, um, after which your insurance covers the rest. So for example, you know, you might pay a $30 copay to get a prescription, or you might pay a $20 copay for a primary care visit. And that's all set out in your plan. Then deductibles are how much you have to pay um, out of pocket before the insurance company pays anything. So maybe your first $500 of medical expenses, you have to pay by yourself, and then your insurance plan kicks in and starts paying either some or all of it. And then co-insurance is after you meet your deductible, um, that's a percent on a per-service basis, what you still have to pay, you know, co-insurance, what you're going to pay in addition to what the insurance is going to pay. So maybe after you meet your deductible, um, your insurance will pay, you know, 80% of emergency care and you have to pay the last 20%. And then finally, the out-of-pocket max is the maximum that you have to pay at all, no matter what happens. So once you reach that, that, you know, out-of-pocket maximum cost, then the insurance company pays everything, regardless of deductive flights, you already, already be above your deductible, but regardless of co-pays or co-insurance. And I think all these aspects of insurance plans matter a lot, because like you mentioned, they, they're an incentive structure. They impact people's ability and desire to seek the health care that they want and need. So, for example, a lot of Americans right now have high deductible health plans. In fact, I believe almost a quarter, let me see if I can find this stat here, but a large portion of um, employers in the United States only offer high deductible health plans as you know the single option for um, employees. I'm trying to find if I can actually find the exact statistic, but... Um, let's see. Yeah, I can't, I, I know I put it somewhere here, but I can't find it. But I think it was about a quarter of employers only provide high deductible health plans. And the, the argument for high deductible health plans is that it reduces spending. It reduces spending on healthcare because it incentivizes people to really think about what care they need and it incentivizes them to price shop. You know, if I can pay a hundred bucks for an x-ray at this urgent care place and a hundred, you know, and 90 bucks for health, an x-ray at this urgent care place, maybe I'll go to a $90 place instead. I um, mean, on a surface level, that seems nice, right? You know, it incentivizes the industry to be competitive and to make sure that things are priced, you know, as cheaply as possible to encourage competition. But there are also problems with that. And there are a lot of problems with that, I think. Number one is that the quality of medical care does not, you know, correlate with lower cost. You know, if you're getting cheaper medical care, you often might be getting lower quality medical care. You know, the provider might have an older x-ray machine or they might not have, you know, certain imaging techniques or certain uh, treatments available for you. And also, you know, 
when you make it so that people are financially responsible for every or for all care that they seek up to some like really high deductible, they're going to seek less care. Maybe they don't go and see their primary care doctor. Or maybe, you know, when they have a flu, maybe they stay home instead of maybe seeing a doctor to try and get some Tamiflu. And I think there are a lot of cases where people should be seeking health care, you know, from a even from like a rational financial sense, but they don't because they don't want to spend the money. And this is not, I think one of the arguments that people make for high deductible health plans is that it only ca- causes people to, you know, not get the care that they don't. So maybe they'll get like the really important care. Maybe they'll go and get stuff that really needs to be fixed, but, you know, elective things they won't really pursue. But the, the research shows that that's not the case. In fact, when people um, have a higher deductible, they seek out both less of both low value and high value health care. So for example, even if primary care visits are free under their plan, they won't see their primary care doctor because they're either not aware of that benefit or they're you know, conditioned to avoid seeking care because it's so expensive, even if in this you know, certain case, it's not expensive. So I think in general, like having these high deductible health plans you know, can cause substantial issues with people not seeking the care that they need and can cause higher spending in the long term, not to mention the fact that people will possibly have more significant health issues because they delayed seeking care. So I think the, oh yeah, go ahead. I was just to say, I think that we can learn a lot from this, you know, when we're designing a Medicare for all plan, because, you know, if we have high deductibles and they cause issues, maybe we don't want that. Yeah. But go ahead. And if you, if you look at some of the stories of people who will get injured at, um, an act like the scene of an accident, and literally tell the person, "Please do not call an ambulance." Does that not set up a light in a lot of people's heads to realize that like these high deductible health insurance plans are literally causing people to refuse care, even emergency care when they need it? And I know that um, we did a little bit of research into um, colorectal cancer, which is actually the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States. And a lot of this tends to be, you know, older people and all that, which is why there is now present preventive measures for people. Um, once you reach the age of 50, you are usually recommended by your primary care physician to start getting colonoscopies at least every few years or so, just to make sure that, um, you know, check up on like polyps, make sure that, um, get them biopsied, make sure that they're not, um, tumors or anything. But even with this, and that there's so much like evidence showing that like if you do the screening like you know there's amazing outcomes like you know we prevent people from um getting late stage um colorectal cancer even then like only about 61% of people who are eligible to get it actually get the testing consistent with the guidelines and a lot of the issue is that like people not only do not want to pay for it, they simply can't pay for something like that. Because if you go in for a colonoscopy, like it's not a super invasive procedure, but you still have to go under anesthesia. That's going to cost you money. You still have to have a hospital bed for at least a day or so. Even if you're just there for the day, you still need it. You're going to be charged for that hospital bed. You are obviously receiving the surgery. You're going to have to pay for that. You're going to have to pay for the pain medications, all that. And not everyone can afford this. Like there are so many financial barriers to this. And if we were to improve the healthcare access and affordability, like the effectiveness of the screening and this treatment will 
you know, colorectal cancer um, deaths will just go down. And it's not just that. It's other people who are not seeking treatment for diseases. Like some people might be having, you know, a reoccurring pain in their knee. And then 10 years later, they have to get their knee replaced because they didn't get checked out. Or they'll have, um, you know, maybe like a nagging like stomach pain or something like that. They won't get checked out. Turns out they have an ulcer and now they have to um, get it removed. And God forbid, if it's a bigger issue, they find out that they actually have cancer, that they have heart disease. Like these are pre- not all, always preventable, but there is ways to detect this early in a lot of cases and get it treated. And this is where the whole Medicare for all like can save up to 70,000 lives. It's because people are refusing to get treatment. And once you take away those financial barriers, you can save thousands of lives through this. Yeah. And, you know, just with your colorectal, colorectal uh, cancer, you know, statistic, waiving, a study showed that waiving coinsurance for colorectal cancer um, screening decreased deaths by 13%. I believe it was people over the age of 50. And this was a, I believe it was a um, study by an insurance company to determine if it makes sense for them to waive coinsurance for the screening procedure. It saved lives. I mean, bottom line, it saved lives. And even though at the end of the day, it did cost more, it did cost the insurance company more, it cost them $17,000 more per 100,000 or per thousand patients. I think that's okay. If we can save lives by spending more as a country, I think we have to realize that's something we should do. We shouldn't always do it necessarily. I think we have to take into account, you know, how many years is is this person going to live? Are are they quality years or are they going to be, you know, permanently, you know, you know, brain dead because of like a, a health condition that they have. I think those are things we should think about. Um, but I think absolutely, like if we can save a life by paying $70,000, I think it's a no brainer for me to do that. Yeah, um, that's where the, um, like that. Uh, one sec, I think you might've cut out here. Let's see. Um, hi, we're back after some technical difficulties. I got Kylie here on the phone. Sorry, my computer um, badly needs to be replaced and I'm being reminded of it every single day. <laughs> no problem, no problem. <laughs> well, yeah, well, hopefully we get a second stimulus bill and that can go to do laptops. <laughs> but uh, I guess we were talking about um, Medicare for all and how cost sharing and how um, I guess patient responsibility in general can impact people's ability and desire to see care. So one thing I want to mention um, once once you were done, I think, is that four in ten Americans have less than four hundred dollars in savings, and even beyond that, most many Americans beyond that can't afford unexpected expenses. So if someone, you know, God forbid, gets into a car accident and they're looking at you know possibly thousands of dollars in hospital bills, I can completely imagine, and it happens saying, no, please don't call an ambulance. I don't, I mean, this is going to ruin me financially and throw me off the ledge. So I think that's definitely something that needs to be addressed um, with with a Medicare for all plan. I think any, I guess, Medicare for all plan that encourages, um, or I guess discourages income inequality and encourages healthcare equality, I think would have to have um, 
either a low deductible and low copayment, low out-of-pocket max, or it could have like, you know, a progressive sliding fee scale based on income. So that would be kind of like a progressive tax where, you know, the more wealthy you are, the more you make each year, the more you would contribute to your healthcare. So I think that yeah. that could be a good idea. Absolutely. And if you've ever received a hospital bill, I'm lucky that I have not been to the hospital, um, you know, like a patient at a hospital since I was born. So oh, very lucky. lucky in that sense. Um, but if you actually ask to see the itemized bill, it is ridiculous what a lot of hospitals will charge you for. And a lot of people, you know, this is just a little life hack. If you've actually ever been, um, you know, gotten an absolutely astronomical hospital bill, ask for the itemized bill and they will cut down your costs by thousands of dollars because they don't want you to see that they charge you $80 for a Band-Aid, $200 for a scalpel, like all these absolutely insane costs because of uh, just hospital costs are always insane. So that's just a little life hack, you know, always ask for the IMI's bill. And just by taking a look at that, if that doesn't get into your mind that we need to have a complete system overhaul, you know, I don't always know what to tell you about that one, but <laughs> yeah, it's like, what is the value of all of this? Like, what is the value in paying $80 for a Band-Aid? What is the value of paying $200 for the scalpel that took out your appendix? Like, it is, health insurance costs are just absolutely insane sometimes and the fees that they'll charge you. And that's why we need caps on all this kind of stuff. That's why we need to like crack down on billing and just make sure that all these costs are free for people because sometimes hospitals will go to insane lengths to try to squeeze out money from you because that's how they get paid. They get paid by the fee for service. And maybe that's actually a good segue into talking about, you know, alternative payment structures, because I think yeah. the, what you mentioned fee for service, I think is probably one of the worst possible um, payment structures because it incentivizes a incentivizes, you know, charging a ton for care because they can charge what they want. And in a lot of cases they'll get paid. Um, and B it also encourages, you know, possibly a lot of unnecessary care, especially when you're talking about for-profit hospitals or, you know, care centers. I think when you're paying by fee for service, it almost incentivizes, I don't want to say bad care, but maybe incentivizes less preventative care because later on, you know, if someone doesn't have a condition met, you know, later on, they might have to have emergency care and that'll cost, you know, 10 times as much. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying, I mean, I don't think any doctor in the world would, you know, say, okay, you know, I would give you like a cancer screening, but I'm not going to because I want to get more money later. I, I don't think that would happen. But at the same time, I think incentive structures are important. And I think if we want to encourage quality, cost-effective care, we have to have an incentive structure and a payment structure that reflects that. So maybe a couple of the, the structures that we can discuss. I mean, there's value-based payment where you pay based on the value of care. There's global budgets where you give, you know, a hospital or a hospital system like a specific, you know, dollar amount to cover care for a population. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of ways that we could um, address the this kind of incentive structure in a Medicare referral plan. So I guess maybe we can just like talk about, you know, value-based payment to start. The idea where you're not paid, you know, if I'm a hospital, I'm not paid in the fee-for-service basis, I'm paid on a how much should I help this patient basis? And I guess also how, you know, 
what if I help the patient a lot, how much did it cost me to do that? You know, what actions did I take to help the patient? Yeah, and you know, there's pros and cons to every single system. Some of the pros of more of a value-based um, kind of payment would be, you know, cost savings because you're encouraging this high quality, effective care, which is going to save lives at the end of the day. So not only are you saving money, um, you're saving money in so many different ways because of that. And then, you know, but some of the cons are it's penalizing some of the sickest people, um, low-income people who are seeking care. And you're not going to initially save a ton of money. It's not like you're going to adopt this system and then the next day you see tens of thousands of dollars in savings. It comes more along the way. And not many people seek the emergency care that they need because of this additional cost. And it's, you know, it's difficult to um, think of like more of a value-based kind of payment because people think that their issues aren't that big. They think that after they get to a car accident, their shoulder kind of hurts. They just kind of brush off as whiplash, but it could actually be a much bigger issue, but they don't think that it's that big at that time. And they don't want to spend the money if it's going to be a simple diagnosis like whiplash, which many people get after car accidents, but it could actually be, you know, like your shoulder actually got a bit dislocated and you didn't realize that because it doesn't hurt at that moment. So, again, pros and cons to every single kind of system. Absolutely. And I think with value-based payments, I think one of the key questions which you kind of touched on is what is value? Is it cost-effectiveness? Is it, um, you know, improving quality of life years? I think there has to be some kind of definition of value by which we pay base um, payments off of. And I think that often, honestly kind of differs in a lot of cases. For example, if a patient is at you know the end of their life and they're getting palliative care, nothing you do is going to save the patient. The goal of treatment is to make them most comfortable and make them at peace while they you know, go through the process of death. And I think we need to, I think fundamentally the idea of value has to be at least partially a clinical decision. I don't think this is a decision that lawyers or politicians should be making. I think it's a decision that should be made by doctors first, and then also to take into account the cost aspect, possibly economists as well. But I think if we factor in both the clinical quality of care as well as the cost and kind of create a comprehensive value measure, I think tying that to payments to hospitals is absolutely could be a good idea. With that said, you know, there are still cons that we have to work out. For example, you know, penalizing the care for the sickest patients. Because if you get, you know, a patient that comes into the ER that's super sick and you know, it's, it's a coin toss as to whether they're going to live or not. And you give them like a lot of expensive care. And if they unfortunately pass away, that doesn't necessarily mean that your care was not high quality. So, I mean, I think we wouldn't want to not pay them in that case. Um, because that would just dis disincentivize giving expensive care, which is not necessarily what we want to do. But I think definitely having this kind of value-based payment could be, you know, a good thing to consider in a Medicare for all plan. Yeah, I... I really like how you touched on um, end-of-life care because my mother actually used to work at um, hosp um, a hospice care facility, and she told me all the time about how they mostly relied off of donations by the communities, and um, I know that certain politicians within my area really helped support um, hospice care because they knew people um, who were there. They had family members there, and that's what they mostly relied off of because 
they weren't getting, you know, a ton of money by having these people there because it is end of life care there. They do have cases where, you know, all of a sudden it's almost like miraculous that like a patient can end up leaving the hospice care because their um, conditions actually improving enough that they're able to go back out into the world. You know, they're actually not at end of life, even though that's what was initially presumed. But of course that doesn't happen with the great majority of the cases. And yeah, that's, that's a lot of issue with end of life care is that there isn't a value placed on that because it's mostly just about making them comfortable, make sure that they're taken care of for the time being. But, you know, it's valued by the people who end up having someone directly affected by it. But now a lot of people, like a lot of politicians stuff like that, unfortunately, see the value in end of life care. Absolutely. And I think it is important. I think it's just as important as prevented or as, um, you know, treat, you know, I guess treating the condition, I think keeping people comfortable and, you know, peaceful. I mean, I think that's one of the most important things we can do in, as a society, right? I mean, how, how a society, you measure a society by how they treat the most vulnerable. And I think they are the most vulnerable. I think we should yeah. you know, discourage that kind of care just because it's not going to save a life. I think there's more to medicine than saving lives for sure. Yeah. Although that is important. I mean, you do want to save lives. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously the most important part about like medical care is, you know, saving lives, preventing issues from happening and all that. But like you're saying, don't forget about um, the most vulnerable people who are the people, you know, end of life care, um, or they just got a terminal diagnosis and they're heading into end of life care. Those cases are still so incredibly important because that's still a person's life. Like they still need to be comfortable towards the end. They need to be around know family people who love them and i feel like that gets overlooked a lot yep absolutely so we have about i guess like nine ten minutes left so for the i guess last part of our conversation i guess we can talk about one more um mechanism for paying hospitals and paying uh, medical groups global budgeting and then maybe after that we can kind of end our discussion a little bit with um I guess just a summary of what we talked about and like what we maybe learned about this and kind of the key points for what mm -hmm. you know policymakers should consider when they're designing a Medicare for all plan. So I think I'll just give a quick summary of the, you know, what a global budgeting system is, and then maybe we can kind of talk about this. So yeah. global budgeting systems essentially mean that, you know, some agency or some group picks out a hospital system, whether it's like, you know, Western Connecticut Medical Group or Harvard Hospital or what whatnot, or Harvard Health. And then you can say, okay, every single, you know, procedure, every single visit that's done for this group of people, everyone in the greater Hartford area, you're going to pay for, it. but we're going to give you a specific budget to do that. So we're going to give you, you know, a hundred million dollars. I mean, it's a random number. I have no idea what the numbers would be, but let's say a hundred million dollars to care for all Connecticut patients. And you are responsible for all of their care. So I think that's a, probably a very much a, a low estimate, but I think having that kind of capitated payment structure could have some, could promote some good incentives. For example, you promote, um, you mean it makes it so that people are not worried about, you know, oh, wow, you know, if I go in for an x-ray, now I'm gonna have to pay a ton of money. No, all of their, their um, care is already paid for. They've already, you know, as part of their taxes or as part of like a, like a global budget premium, they've already paid for all of the care that they will need. 
So that means that they can seek out whatever care they need and they don't have to worry about the money. So, and also I think this kind of budget has some uh, benefits for smaller hospitals. So for example, rural hospitals, which we should talk about. Um, you know, these hospitals might not see a lot of patients and having a global budget um, could make sure that they can stay open and stay alive, even if they're not getting a ton of volume. But there are cons. For example, hospitals might lose incentives to provide care if they don't get paid on a fee-for-service basis. So what's to stop them from, you know, not treating cancer patients at all or something like that? Um, there, there would have to be some controls built in to, you know, make sure care quality and care comprehensiveness is kept up. Yeah, I feel like the... Um the discussion around saving rural hospitals is so vital, especially during this pandemic. You know, rural hospitals, about 20% of Americans live in rural areas, and these hospitals are meant to service them. And it's been a huge catastrophe over the last decade or so about the closure of these rural hospitals. About a quarter of um, rural hospitals are facing possible closures and are actually in very high risk of closing. And if you just look at how many have closed over the last decade, roughly 120 have closed, which, yes, does not seem like that much. But then when you realize that there is only a couple thousand rural hospitals, that's about 10 percent of rural hospitals have closed within the last decade. 19 of them were just last year. So there's so many implications of this. Not only is it putting people out of work, but it's also putting these communities in such grave danger because now these people are going to have to drive all the way out um, to their nearest hospital, which might be up to 45 minutes away. And when you need urgent care and you need the person to be in a hospital within maybe like only 15 minutes or so, that could result in so many more people losing their lives, so many more people being in such grave danger of, you know, not being able to fully bounce back from a medical issue. And just an interesting um, fact that I threw in um, that I found during our research was that with the eight states that have the highest level of closure since 2010, none of them are Medicaid expansion, um, expansion states. So those are states who, with the ACA, um, were permitted to expand their Medicare to, you know, help out more of their population, um, get the medical care that they need. And it's absolutely insane to me that eight, the top eight states are, are in the gravest danger of losing all this care from these hospitals don't even have the Medicaid ex expansion that could, you know, help out these people with more like preventive care, like, you know, keep up with hospital, um, not hospital, <laughs> more like physician um, visits and all that. So this this is a grave issue um, with rural hospitals, and I encourage everyone to look into this issue and become more vocal about it. Absolutely, and I think it kind of shows co showcases how all this ties together. You know, you talk about you know seeking care, you talk about um, rural hospitals and availability of healthcare, and we talk about income equality and and you know social determinants of health and you know food deserts and food availability. All this stuff ties together. I think having a comprehensive healthcare plan could go a long way towards, you know, improving a lot of the you know, global, I guess, the general state of affairs for the middle and lower class in our country. You know, from healthcare to, to um, because I mean, the less they have to worry about health and the less they have to worry about, you know, food availability, for example, the more they can focus on other things. Um, so I think that's that's just such a you know good point to make. Like rural hospitals ties in.
it ties into everything. So yeah, and I know that um, in our research, we were um, finding a lot of things about um, some some health insurance plans were actually trying to offer incentives um, for people to you know eat healthier. Some um, you know if you exercise more, we'll give you discounts. Like that sounds great on paper. Like there are some people who you know could take advantage of that. Um, but those are people who have the privilege to be able to do something like that. You know, families who have parents who are working two or three jobs aren't going to be able to make extra time to um, get a gym membership. They can't spend that extra money, even if it's just like 10 bucks a month. That 10 bucks a month goes towards their food budget, which is already, in a lot of cases, very low, you know. And especially, like you were saying before, the topic of food deserts and everything, like these all connect in to our healthcare debates. And even though these incentives, once again, sound great on paper, once you try to put them into practice, it doesn't help the people who need it the most. Exactly. I think all these programs are more complex than they seem at first. I mean, like, like mm-hmm. you said, you know, the food for food prescriptions sound great on paper, or, you know, gym membership incentives have written paper. But when, you know, a single mom who's working two jobs, she wouldn't have time to go to the gym. And she might not have time to, you know, purchase and cook fresh produce. Also, she might not have the money to do that, even if there is an incentive for her to do so. So I think any kind of program like that, where we're talking about incentivizing people to, you know, live, you know, quote unquote, healthier lifestyles, we absolutely have to take into account, is this going to help the target population we want to help, or is it just going to help people who are already privileged enough to get the help they need? So I think that's it. that's a great point. And I think the yeah, yeah I, I feel guess, like oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, um, I feel like that um, might be a good place to wrap up. But if you have more to say, absolutely go ahead. That's actually exactly what I was gonna say too. I think <laughs> we had a really good discussion today, you know, about yeah what Medicare for all should look like, how we should pay for it. Um, what the payment structure to hospitals should look like, um, you know, what it should cover, deductibles, cost sharing. I, I think we had a great discussion today about Medicare for All. And I guess thanks for listening. Yeah, you know, this is, this might just be like a short, roughly 45 minute episode, but this could have gone on for hours discussing all the implications about our healthcare system, where it is now, where it could go. You know, there's so many different ways that it could go. And of course, me and Daniel will leave and Medicare for all, but there's still implications to that. And those need to be discussed. You know, we need to discuss um, the issue of rural hospitals. We need to discuss food deserts. We need to discuss prioritizing care for um, so many different people and what that would look like in our current healthcare system. And once again, where it can go. So once again, thank you for listening. Um, I encourage everyone to do research into this and just become informed. You know, we gave you a lot of great information today, but there was so much more that we could have shared.